the core cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is the family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that recognizing recognizes the fighting in this area is furious, so hit and away is our style. From RFGeneration.com, I am Metal Fro, and with me as my co-pilot, as always, is... Addicted, also known as Addicted to Shmups. And we are delighted to have a guest with us this evening, the one and only Sarah Flash. How's it going, everyone? Sarah Flash from Bullet Heaven. Indeed. Uh, so, as I mentioned, rfgeneration.com is the website you want to be at. That's where we're affiliated. We've got a great community over there. We have uh, a forum that you can participate in and post different things um, that's where we have our community playthrough and of course the shmup club playthrough we also have a huge database where you can catalog your game collection uh, or in Sarah's case your game library and uh, <laughs> uh, it's full of all kinds of different variants and things like that uh, it's just growing every day it's a really good resource plus we have a discord server we have uh, articles on the front page that many of us write and videos as well. Uh, so lots of good stuff there. Uh, make sure you check it all out. It's all free at rfgeneration.com. Also like to mention, take and look at the Bullet Heaven YouTube channel. I have learned so much about all sorts of shmups that I hope one day to play and one day for us to feature here on the RF Generation Shoot the Corecast Thank you so much for any all the information, and it's just amazing to see the content that you produce. Oh, no worries. If you're interested in checking out Bullet Heaven for yourself, be sure to hit us up at uh, um, youtube.com slash Siraxor. That's S-E-R-R-A-X-O-R. And that's where you'll find the Studio Mud Prince channel that uh, chronicles all the shooting games that we've played over the years. We're currently in our 11th year gearing up for a 12th in October. So uh, we hope you enjoy our content and feel free to leave comments. We always try to respond to each and every one. Awesome. So the game of the month that we played during the month of July was Yuan Squadron or Area 88, uh, if you're playing the Japanese version. But before we get to that, uh, I want to go over the question of the month that we asked um, because uh, it sort of relates to this game in particular and that is uh, UN Squadron changes the formula from the arcade game for the home version. So what game do you believe was made better when it was brought home to PC or consoles? And uh, I think we got some pretty good responses on this. So uh, at DEZM101 or DJ Trist says Bionic Commando on NES is often noted for this reason. I would also add Turtles in Time, Punch Out, and probably Double Dragon 2. 
And yeah, I think uh, I think those are all valid games. Bionic Commando for sure is one that I think uh, was greatly improved coming home. Our next one comes from the gaming hubby, Chelnov from Arcade to Mega Drive, and I completely agree. The Mega Drive just has that sweet soundtrack and had a lot more replayability than the arcade version. What do you think? You know, I haven't played the Mega Drive version, and I've only barely messed around with uh, the arcade game. I remember playing it in a in a campground office one time as a kid, um, and I've messed around with it a couple of times since, but really, I just haven't played it enough. But I have heard that from other people, that that uh, the Mega Drive or Genesis version is an improvement. We also had Zoido, who said, I'd vote for Gradius 3. It's less punishing than the arcade version, and I also prefer the soundtrack of the Super Famicom version. So to me, it's more fun to play the port. Slowdown is another issue, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I'd agree with that, too. I think the soundtrack on the Super Famicom version is quite a bit better than the arcade version, at least when it comes to my tastes. Yeah, I, I tend to prefer the Super NES version. I, I'm kind of the same, both the game and the soundtrack. Now, once you put the SA1 version, you know, that SA1 hack version next to it, then it kind of becomes a bit of a wash. And actually, the SA1 version might be even harder than the arcade game in some respects, just because of the l total lack of a slowdown. But yeah, overall, I would say... The, the Super NES version is more fun. Alright, next one comes from us at the Shmup Junkie. I'll go with Ninja Gaiden on the NES. The arcade beat-em-up was cool, but they rightfully knew the NES port wouldn't measure up given the console's limitations. So they made a whole new game that spawned a legendary series across generations that's still known today. Yeah, and I completely agree with this one. The NES Ninja Gaiden trilogy, I really like... One, two, and three's growing on me. But if you go back and try the arcade version or even the Lynx port of it, it it it's just so generic and nothing really holds up. Agreed. Maz six seven zero eight six eight zero four says every M two STG series port till now. <laughs> well, that's cheating a little bit, but um, yeah, I mean that's a that's an interesting take. Because, you know, when you think about a lot of these ports, you think about games that are fundamentally changed from from what they were. Uh, now, of course, you can kind of say that with something like uh, Katsui Destiny, because it's a new mode that takes the same base gameplay, but changes it pretty drastically from what it was. You know, less so, I think, for something like Esperade or... Battle Garega Revision 2016. I don't think it's so vastly different from the original game that you don't see the parallels. But yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting way of looking at it. And I, I guess I would tend to agree from the standpoint that they just offer you more and uh, give you the opportunity to get more out of the game. And speaking of Ketsui, it's scheduled or at least supposed to be released stateside there was an english translation i hope that we see that via limited run because i know they signed another deal with m2 to do a u.s publish 
that would be an instant double dip for me. (laughs) Our next one comes to us from at Easy Racer. I'll cheat a little because I've never played the arcade version of the game that I picked, but the arcade Ninja Gaiden doesn't even look fun to me. Yet, I've arguably put more hours into the NES series than just about anything. Again, yeah, the NES Ninja Gaiden was made and tailored for the NES platform and executes on it brilliantly. I really have a lot of fun with the series. Yeah, well, I can I can say Easy Racer that I played Ninja Gaiden in the arcade as a kid, and uh, you're not missing a whole lot. I think it's famous for that one scene. It's not. Uh, it's a buzzsaw, right? The continue scene yep. with the buzzsaw's descent, and that's really the most remarkable thing about the game. That was. There's a prototype of it that was also being poured over the Genesis, but never made it, if I remember correctly. Oh, interesting. And you can you try it out on your uh, mis- mysterious Mister device. Yeah, I might have to do that. Uh, our last response comes from Steel Ball Runner, who says, "Final fight." even if Rolento and his whole stage was cut out. And that's a bit of a controversial take uh, if you're talking about the Super NES version, because I know a lot of people kind of decry that version for being a bit clunky and for having the two-player mode taken out, uh, and then also for missing a character, uh, whereas the Sega CD version of Final Fight put back Guy and put back the two-player mode and so, yeah, I you know I guess it, I guess it just depends on your taste. I had fun with the Super Nintendo version, but the, in my opinion, the Sega CD, especially the the recolor version of the Sega CD, is just the best console port. Yep. All right. Well, thank you everyone for uh, answering those questions. And so, I guess I'll turn to you guys and say, for you know, in terms of games that started in the arcade and then came home in some form, what do you guys think is uh, the best sort of arcade-to-home rework? I'm going to go out there and say, um, well, it's kind of a two-way split, really. We got Soul Calibur, which went from, uh, I think it was on Naomi first, and then it went to Dreamcast. And then there was uh, Capcom's Tech Romancer, which saw an arcade release before it came to the Dreamcast. And both of them, compared to their arcade counterparts, are much more polished and better graphically and uh, and sound-wise. Yeah, I mean, Soul Calibur is an obvious example. Uh, that That's one of those where I think the Dreamcast version is superior to the, to the arcade original in virtually every way. Oh, yes. Well, I was going to say something, but you took my choice. So. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I had spent so much time with the... I imported the Dreamcast in November 1998 and spent like close to 500 bucks on it. So as soon as Soul Calibur came out, I immediately bought it, played a ton of it, and then I loved it so much I sought out and bought the System 12 arcade board. And I was so disappointed that it didn't match up. I, I should have done my research, but... It, the Dreamcast version in Tech Romancer is another one on the ZN1 board, which is, is just another PlayStation board, but it's a Capcom hardware. <clears throat> there, I got it for the actual arcade machine from Tips and Tricks magazine, and I loved it so much that when, I, but then I played the Dreamcast version, and I said, "Oh, I could have saved myself three hundred dollars if I just bought the Dreamcast version first. I completely agree; those are better choices. And if anyone hasn't tried those games, 
please look them up. They're definitely worth a try. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be maybe slightly controversial, and and say that I prefer the NES version of 1943 to the arcade release. Uh, I sort of dig the kind of light RPG element that they added to the game. Uh, I think the difficulty is a little bit more balanced. It feels a little less insane than the arcade original. Yeah, that makes me sound like a noob and like a scrub, but whatever. Uh, that's a game that I played a ton growing up, and it's one that I will be excited when we finally get around to to covering it in the Shmup Club, because A, it'll give me a chance to go back to the NES version, but then B, it'll also give me an opportunity to spend some time with the arcade version and perhaps give it the you know, the love and the, the time that it deserves so I can really do as, as good a comparison between the two as, as I can. You know what? I think I can get behind that too. I think I do prefer the NES version of 1943 to the arcade version. And by extension, uh, 1943 Kai on the PC engine plays a lot better than 1943 Kai in arcade, that's for sure. I'm surprised you didn't say that. In fact, I was almost banking on the fact (laughs) that you were going to say that because I know you really enjoy 1943 Kai on the PC Engine. Uh, Oh, I do. And so... But I I also really like Tech Romancer. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, Addicted, do you want to shout out the participants for the month? Sure. Our participants for the month of July were Metal Fro, Addicted, Easy Racer, Shaggy, Duke Togo, Crabmaster 2000, Saturday Development, Zoido, Fo Macho, Geardo 2011, or sorry, Geardo 211, and of course, Sir Flash, who showed us lots and tips of tricks on how to play this game, is this game can get pretty brutal pretty quickly. Indeed. Uh, so we don't need to belabor the point on, uh, you know, the development of the game. Uh, everyone knows it was Capcom who developed and published this game, uh, but we'll just hit a couple of bullet points. Uh, it came out in 1989 in Japan, and it was known as Area 88, and then UN Squadron here in the West. And it was uh, on Capcom CPS-1 hardware and based on the Area 88 manga by... Kaoru Shintani, uh, which ran from 1979 to 1986, uh, which, so I found that kind of interesting when I was reading up on that, that, uh, the arcade game actually released on the 10th anniversary of the, you know, the start of the manga, not necessarily day and date, but, you know, in terms of the year. And, uh, from what I read, Area 88 was actually one of the first three Japanese manga that was actually westernized and, uh, you know, translated to English for Western release, which I thought was cool and certainly is in good company alongside something like uh, Golgo 13. And I can't think of what the other what the other one would have been, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, that that was one of the early examples of of kind of serialized Japanese we would call them comic books here, but you know, in, in similar fashion, graphic novels or, or that kind of a thing where, where, uh, you know, we started to see that coming in from, from, uh, outside the U S or certainly outside of North America. 
Now, of course, the game got ports on a bunch of microcomputers, uh, all the usual suspects, the ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC, Commodore 64, Atari ST, and Amiga. Uh, I don't know if all of those ports were actually licensed, but as far as I was able to tell, just in the little bit of research I did, they're all based on the arcade version and are, you know, successful in varying degrees at emulating what the arcade game was. When the game came home, Japan got it in 1991. Uh, we got it just a couple of months later, I want to say, and then it showed up in Europe in 1992. The, the Super NES game is more of a reimagining of the arcade game in some ways. A lot of the locations are similar. Uh, it uses some of the same bosses and things like that, but it definitely takes a different approach. Uh, it adds some kind of light RPG elements, as we mentioned, like with 1943, and um, gives you some choice. You know, the standard arcade game, you just stage one, stage two, stage three, and you just kind of go through. But in the arcade game, once you play the first stage, you've got a little bit of choice as to what you're going to do next. Um, I would argue that you don't have as much choice uh, because I think there's a certain there's a certain path that you take through the game that where the difficulty ramps up in such a way that it makes sense to go a certain direction in terms of the stage order that you pick. Uh, but certainly, you're at least given the freedom to, you know, to explore that. Yeah, I would agree. I would have to say that the Area 80, it's all about a war zone. I mean, it's, it's akin to like Rambo First Blood. It, it's all about war and the cost of war and the toll it takes upon those the, who participate in the war. And I, the arcade version is very well done. It's very streamlined. And it's definitely a fun game to play, and that, that was what was ported to all those uh, micro-PCs. However, the Super Nintendo version, with its reimagining, really gives a better way of making you feel like you're fighting a war. Because if, if you don't hit your targets in time, then it gets closer to your base being destroyed. So you're constantly trying to manage your weapons, manage your money buy the better planes so that way you can take on those enemies, defeat them, and then make some headway or make some ground. Right. Now, the interesting thing about the move to the Western market is, for some reason, we got the game as UN Squadron instead of Area 88. I don't know if it was changed for licensing reasons, which seems odd because the character names and likenesses are in the game and the game essentially retains a lot of the, the same stuff. So I don't know if it's just the name that they had to license and the rest of the stuff, the likenesses and all, all of that they could get away with. Um, but I thought it was curious that they called it UN squadron. And maybe that's just because the area 88 name didn't have that much cachet in the West. I can see that. Like even in the opening, uh, the opening sequence, uh, you can see a 88 right on the runway when you're barreling down it. Right. And, and in the super NES version, when you, when you, uh, 
complete a stage, and then it shows on the map that it's it's owned by Area 88. So it was an odd choice, and as uh, <laughs> as Duke Togo pointed out in on more than one occasion uh, during the month when I was streaming it, uh, he said it's it doesn't the name doesn't really fit because you're not really the UN and it's not really a squadron, you know. I mean, yeah, you got the three different characters to pick to pick from, but the Super NES version does not have a two-player mode like the arcade game. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's literally just you against the entire opposing mercenary force. So the name is is kind of generic, and it's just sort of curious as to why they chose to go that direction. Maybe it was made by the same guy. The decision was made by the same guy who put a uh, man with a banjo on the cover of a shmup. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, phalanx. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. I think the marketing too was a little misleading on the super Nintendo version, as opposed to the super Famicom one, because uh, for, there, there's been more than one person in the past that has told me that, uh, you know, when they first saw the, the game, they thought for sure that it was going to be a flight simulator, but it ended up just being a complete, a completely different style. Side-scrolling instead of, like, cockpit view. Right. Yeah, I could see that based on just the cover art that uh, someone might expect it to be more of a flight sim or or at least, you know, the kind of a flight sim that the Super NES <laughs> is capable of. And to uh, to go even further than that, the the screenshots in the back are from the arcade version, not the Super Famicom version. Okay, see, I don't have the box, so that is interesting. Wow. Yeah, it even it even shows the it even shows the slot for two players and everything. Wow. How did Capcom get away with that? I I, I don't know. I think yeah, that's that's almost false advertisement. Absolutely. Yeah, that is really interesting. Oh my gosh, I'm just my head is spinning right now because I'm just sitting here thinking, <laughs> how in the world did how did they get away with that? <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. For comparison's sake, too, the the uh, Japanese box does in fact have the actual gameplay from the uh, the version that's in the box, huh? Yeah, just so weird, huh? Well, anyway, uh, the game did get a, a sequel of sorts. Uh, it's more of a spiritual sequel in a, in a way. It basically uses the same game engine with some tweaks, uh, but it's called Carrier Air Wing in Japan. Uh, they dropped the Area 88 connection, and uh, you sort of play with you know three planes with three generic pilots, and your commanding officer looks uh, like um, oh, who's the actor? Oh gosh, I can't think of his name. Um, Sean Connery. It looks like Sean Connery in a military uniform. And uh, anyway, oddly enough, even though there's no licensing and no, you know, no uh, likenesses or anything like that that they need to take into consideration, they still changed the name when they brought it over in uh, to the West, and they called it U.S. Navy. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I don't understand that at all. Uh, but oddly enough, Carrier Air Wing and U.S. Navy 
have not seen console releases, even though it was on the same CPS-1 hardware as uh, as Area 88. So I'm not quite sure what, uh, what the deal is with that, but uh, anyway, that's one that I would eventually like to see come to console at some juncture. Uh, Addicted, would you like to regale us the story of the game? All right. Well, it may not have text maxium, but it's still a good story. <laughs> All right. So, Guy Kazama is engaged to his girlfriend, Ryoko Sugumo, and is on the verge of graduating flight school. I, I think you. He I has, think you mean Shin Kazama. Oh, you caught me on there. I just trying to sneak <laughs> you, a Guy Kazama in there. <laughs> Lol. All right, Shin Kazama is engaged to his girlfriend, Ryoko um, Sugono, and is on the verge of graduating flight school. He has dreams of becoming an airline pilot for his fiancé's father's airline corporation, but one night in Paris, his backstabbing false friend, Satoru Kanzai, takes him into a bar and gets him drunk enough to trick him into joining the Azron military, where he must serve for three years so that Satoru may take his place is the top pilot of Yamato Airlines and Ryoko's fiance. And now there's only three ways he can get out. He can serve his three-year term, he can buy his way out by earning a million from destroying enemies, or he can desert, which is cons- constant, excuse me, considered a federal crime in arson. In the fight against Project 4, Shin is joined by two pilots, Mickey Simon and Greg Gates. I want to point out here that Project 4 is a group of militants within the country of Arsan who find that they profiteer so much from warmongering that they form their own terrorist organization, known henceforth as Project 4, and they are the main antagonist of the game. Yep. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of cool that that they sort of keep the same basic premise from the manga and uh, bringing that forward in the game rather than trying to, you know, make some sort of new scenario or do something goofy with it. So I like that they kind of played it straight. All right, let's move on to gameplay. The arcade version is very straightforward. It's a set order of stages with only three planes, one plane for each pilot. It's preset. Shin Kazama flies the F-8 Tiger Shark. He's the fastest and powers up... The fastest. He's the fastest pilot and powers up the fastest. Mickey Simon flies the F-14 Tomcat. He's the most powerful character and powers up at the highest level. And last but not least, we have Greg Gates flying the A-10 Thunderbolt plane. While powering up much slower than others, also fires the downward cannon. So, we're playing the arcade version. Who was your pilot of choice? Uh, I kind of went back and forth. I I started as Shin Kazama uh, just because that's who I was mostly playing in the Super NES version. But as I went along, I realized, well, Greg Gates has the advantage of having the Thunderbolt. And so you have that downward fire that you get. So you have forward fire and then you have that 45 degree angled fire as well which makes some sections of the game quite a bit easier. Uh, But as I went along, Geriatric Danmaku, who was coming into the streams, uh, had played some as well, and he was suggesting that I give Mickey Simon a try, because Mickey Simon 
powers up to uh, the highest level. And so the swath of destruction that his plane can cut once you're fully powered up is pretty ridiculous. And yeah, it is. I mean, your your shots become just one giant wave of of bullets that kind of spews out and it's it's pretty impressive and it kind of gives you the ability to to do to have a lot of coverage. Yeah, I found that as well. I usually Mickey Simon quite a bit. I initially went with Shin Kazama and liked it. I mean, he's default, good character. And then it switched over to Greg Gates, who gives you a lot more of the ground coverage, there, which is really nice for a state, if I remember my stage numbers correctly, stage five, where you start with the trees and you got to hit everything, and they have the sort of flying mines in the air, followed by the big base at the end. And then Mickey Simon, though, he once you get him powered up, he makes short work of the stealth bomber in stage two. Just tears through it. Yeah, yeah, he really does. Have uh, have either of you ever played the arcade game in an actual arcade or seen the cabinet anywhere? I haven't played the arcade version at all. Yeah, I hadn't until uh, this past month. Um, I've never seen it anywhere, or at least I don't recall ever seeing it anywhere. It's possible that it was in an arcade somewhere when I was a kid and I just passed it by, but I don't ever remember seeing uh, a UN Squadron cabinet anywhere. Yeah, I saw all the usual suspects from Capcom, you know, your Street Fighter 2, your Knights of the Round, all that stuff. I don't remember ever seeing a, or even a carrier air wing. Right. Yeah, so I, I thought it was curious. I mean, when I f- first knew about UN Squadron, it was from the Super NES game. Uh, so I didn't even know there was an arcade version of that. Uh, until several years later and yeah so i mean like i said i i didn't even know this was a thing until you know a few years ago and it's a uh, it's it's different yeah i mean it must have been popular enough that it got ported to all of the micros yeah you would think so either that or they were just uh <laughs> they were just looking for something to to get out on those systems but yeah i, I would imagine it was at least marginally popular. All right. So moving on with the arcade version, it has 10 stages in a specific order, which includes the final boss fight. The Super Nintendo version allows you some freedom to choose your stage order after the introductory stage, as well as opportunities for farming for money by taking on short caravan missions. Building upon Capcom's earlier shooter, 1943, the player's plane doesn't get instantly destroyed when it takes damage, but will have a couple of iframes or invincibility frames, then be in a warning state for a few moments where the next hit could destroy the plane. If you pass the warning period, your health bar returns to normal, and you see how much health you have remaining. <clears throat> with your health, quick aside here, with your health, meaning it's measured by your fuel gauge, which I thought was a nice touch. Collisions with enemy planes or terrain obstacles will yield more damage than bullets. So, with the Super Nintendo version on there, you, you sort of get the, the iframe and that buffer where where if you get hit, it flashes for a little bit, and then you can, if you're hit by another thing in that time, you're done. It, it acts more as a shield in the Super Nintendo version, where in the 
arcade version, you're just given a set number of hits and that's it. Right. With uh, we have this is where Greg Gates really comes into play in the Super Nintendo version as he recovers the quickest after getting hit. Is there anything else you'd like to add to, add to this or anything else you discovered? Well, with Mickey Simon in this particular version too, he's he's kind of in the middle for both recovery and power-up speed, but that also makes him the most difficult to use in a strange irony. Right. Yeah, yeah, specific to the Super NES version, I I don't think I ever used Mickey. I just didn't find him to be different enough or you know, the the balance that they tried to strike with him just didn't work. I, I don't think it worked. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah he see. really he really he really could have been omitted completely from this version. Right. Or if they had done if they had done something like in the arcade version where he powers up at the highest level, that would have made more sense. So even if he took a little bit hmm. longer to uh, to power up than Shin Kazama, you know, if his top level was was similar to the arcade version, where regardless of what plane he's flying, he could power up a little bit more than the other two guys. Well, that would have made more sense then for him to to be in the squad. But yeah. Yeah, it just it just doesn't feel like the balanced approach is a good idea for him. You know, there are a lot of games and a lot of genres where that works well. Uh, you know, beat 'em ups and fighting games and things like that, where you can take the the sort of balanced character, and if you're good enough, or if you work with a character like that long enough, you can you can make something work. Um, but in this game, I feel like Everything in the game is working against that kind of approach uh, being successful. <laughs> yeah, with him not receiving his A10 ship out of the gate in the Super Nintendo or Super Famicom version, it really certainly negates any uh, advantage that he might have. Right. And speaking of the Super Nintendo slash Super Famicom version, <clears throat> they allow you to pick from the same three pilots, but everyone starts with the F. 8E Cruiser, and $3,000. There are additional planes that you can purchase, including the F-20 Tiger Shark, which is a minor step up from the Crusader, the F-14D Tomcat, which is made for air-to-air combat. It's a really fast plane, but it doesn't handle ground combat very well. We have the A-10 Thunderbolt II, which is made for ground attacks, and it has a 45-degree downward secondary cannon, just like in the arcade game. However, it cannot power up very far. We have the YF-23, the Stealth Ray, which homing missiles will not track this plane and can equip many types of secondary weapons. And of course, we have the infamous F-200 Ifrit, the best plane in the game and can utilize all weapons, has higher ammo capacity for all weapons, and can power up the most. Is there any particular plane that everyone like to favor and go for besides the, maybe the Ifrit? <laughs> Uh, I experimented quite a bit with the Thunderbolt. I really hoped that I would be able to to make that my my go to, and you know just be able to uh, buy secondary weapons and just utilize more of those rather than trying to save up the million dollars that you need to buy the Efreet. But I found that it doesn't because it doesn't power up that far. 
you're you once you get past kind of the fifth or sixth stage or maybe even to the fifth or sixth stage you really feel underpowered and so it becomes more about learning positioning and how to dodge things so that you have the time that you need in order to continue to pelt enemies with your fire um, because it's a lot less effective and it takes a lot more a lot more shots in order to do the same amount of damage that you can with something like the Ifrit. For me, uh, I actually use the Crusader almost exclusively throughout the entire game. Um, and I can actually get through the entire game with just the Crusader on a good run. But um, basically, I want to get the, the F200 for that dumb um, cave stage. Oh, like that... <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really the it's the only stage that really trips me up because I can use the Crusader consistently on every other stage and uh, and win. Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that stupid ceiling boss in the Super NES version. Oh. Uh, that thing is a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually get the one credit clear with only the Crusader. I was only on easy difficulty, granted, but I only used the Crusader. <laughs> and I did actually get the 1cc all the way through on a live stream some time ago. I remember that. That was good. Uh, I tried to make it with the Tomcat, and that plane was just too fast for anything I was trying to do. So I mostly stuck with the Crusader as well. That's impressive to do a 1cc on that. Congratulations. Oh, thank y'all. All right. So each of the three characters have their own special attributes that bring the Super Nintendo version, which are similar to the arcade original. We have Shin Kazama, which, as we mentioned, he powers up the fastest of the three characters and is the fastest. Mickey Simon powers up the highest level and has medium speed. Gets more ammo than the others for secondary weapons. Last but not least, we have Greg Gates, who powers up the least and is the slowest, but recovers from damage the fastest. In both versions, Commander Sakai Vashtal briefs you on the mission before each stage, and a character named McCoy runs a weapon shop where you can buy upgrades for your plane for before each stage. The arcade version limits you to two weapon choices, which differ from stage to stage, plus the HP boost and two shield choices. Some stages also include special weapon power-ups, such as an ammo refill or a hidden weapon that can be unlocked by meeting specific requirements. For example, the three-way laser in Stage 5. Again, the arcade version is more streamlined and just sort of gives, here's what you need for the stage where the NES or Super Famicom version gives you room to experiment. And I sort of like both approaches. I... Personally, I felt maybe just a tear more inclined to the arcade version in the streamline of it, but I, I did really like playing around and trying different weapons for different stages. Did anyone else do that? A little bit. I I didn't actually, with the arcade version, I didn't actually use the special weapons that much because I I felt like, for me, it was more important most of the time to have access to a shield, but um, but there were a couple of spots where where I had to have something, like the uh, I think it's stage uh, either six or seven, where 
You're flying higher up in the sky. You're not taking on any ground targets. It's all planes. And you have the option to get the, the Phoenix missiles, the, the homing missiles. And so you're taking on these large planes and, uh, that kind of come out in front. And then behind you are smaller planes that are a lot closer to size, uh, closer in size to your plane. And so as you're pelting the large planes with your forward cannon, a lot of times it's just easier to use those Phoenix missiles to sort of take out those small planes behind you so that they don't snipe you from behind. Well, that was the stage with the, uh, the galaxy attack plane at the end, wasn't it? The big old C five. Yeah. Yeah. There was, yeah. Cause you have, uh, I think that's, and there's a bunch of, there was a bunch of B 52s in the main stage. Right. And then, yeah. And then at the very end, you've got that large plane, the C five, and then you've got two yeah. other, planes that sort of flank it and you have to you know kind of take them all out uh during the boss fight there at the end and it gets the screen gets pretty claustrophobic uh because you don't have a lot of room to maneuver but other than that and a couple of spots where it made sense to to grab the napalm uh i did that otherwise i'm mostly stuck to just the forward cannon I saw in your stream that you were following the with the get a shield and then follow through, follow through with Mickey so that we have good forward offense and keep doing that and doing it until you get to the last stage. At which point you get a um, was it full force field at that point? And that was a strat. Yeah the 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 full force field where you got five hits, but then also on the final stage, then uh, definitely going for the special weapon so that. You know, you've got a lot of of arsenal to to take out that that last boss. Yeah, and I heard that uh, Jerry at Damaku cleared it on the hardest difficulty using the strat. No, for the, at least for the archiver. No, no, that was uh, that was actually a, a Twitch streamer, Tails MK4. Shout out to Tails MK4 who had come to some of my streams and had been playing the game kind of alongside us a little bit last month. And he didn't do it within the course of the month. Actually, he just did this a week or a week and a half ago, something like that. But he managed to, he managed to clear the game, the arcade version on the highest difficulty. Um, And so that's quite an achievement. Yeah, after playing on the hardest difficulty, I, I got my butt kicked pretty quickly. Yeah. All right, and so as we talked about, the Super Nintendo version has more weapon choices, but each plane has certain special weapon types that cannot be used. No health or shield upgrades are available in the shop, though health is restored after each stage. Some stages have health pickups, or occasionally a unicorn can be re- revealed, which grants your plane a three-hit shield like the arcade game. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that that uh, you know in the arcade version you have the option to buy a shield before the levels, assuming you have enough money. But in the forest stage, where you can take out all the all the tanks and stuff on the ground and destroy the trees on your way through, they that's one of the interesting things where they kept that from the arcade version to the Super NES version, where if you destroy all the trees that it will allow you to destroy, 
by the time you reach the the base at the end of the level, you can trigger the unicorn, which will give you that shield and allow for the three hits. Uh, so I thought it was an interesting choice to, uh, f- you know, to kind of keep that in the Super NES version and a good choice, I think. I had always wondered why it wouldn't appear at some points, but when I was told, I think it was you that told me that if I uh, if I shot them all, or maybe it was Vic Viper. Might have um, been Vic, yeah. It might have been Vic. He, uh, so- Someone told me that I had to shoot all the trees, and then sure enough, I was able to, uh, to trigger it pretty much right then and there. So now I can get that with 100% certainty every time. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the that's the same level that has the uh, the Yashichi as well, right? Ah, yes. There's a, a Yashichi right at the uh, the end of the fortress itself. Before you have to turn around, you can trigger it there. Yeah, and I believe I believe you can do that in the arcade version as well. Uh, if memory serves, I I managed to do that a couple of times. A lot easier with the Thunderbolt because of that downward fire, um, and you can. You know, you can trigger that kind of as you're passing the uh, the end of the base. Uh, but then most of the time when I played the arcade version, I managed to actually destroy the base early and not even get out past to the to the last couple of turrets at the end. Whereas on the Super NES version, it the the main hub of the base takes enough of a of a pounding that. I don't think you can do it in one pass. There's also another pickup here that I think we would be remiss to skip over, and that's uh, you, you can find them in certain stages. Um, it, it looks almost like a, a revolver cylinder. It basically recovers and refills your special weapons by a certain amount. Right. And that, that, yeah. that was in the arcade version as well, but only in one or two places. I know in the Super NES version... You can trigger it uh, right as you're going up to the, yeah. the desert crawler or yep. desert carrier. And there's also there's also one that you can get uh, uh, near the bow of the battleship Minx. Right. And of course, in the the final stage, there's a uh, there's all of these all of these pickups can be found. Yeah, and let's see. You don't get it before the Minx fight in the arcade version, but you do in that stage I mentioned where you fight the C5 at the end. At some point during the stage, um, one of the group of three, there's a group of three red planes that you shoot down to, you know, get the power-ups. Ah, yeah. And that, that will trigger the uh, the ammo refill. That That's one of the things that we haven't really touched on, is that, um, that the power-ups in the game really are just something to to make your forward fire stronger. Uh, and so yeah. when you take out the, the squadrons of, of red enemy planes, they drop these little, these little icons that are blue or green or whatever. And depending on um, which one you pick up, it'll increase your level by either one or five or whatever. And so that sort of adds up. And then once you reach a certain threshold, then then you're firing more bullets. Yeah, that also carries over to the Super Famicom version as well. But uh, there are only two types that you can pick up, which are red and blue for one and three, respectively. Ah, right. 
and we talked about this a little, a little bit earlier, but about different bosses and the, the act. But refresh my memory here. I know that there was a canyon stage with the bomber that's in the arcade version, and that was replaced with. The, I'm trying to remember what it was replaced with in the Super Famicom version. Oh, oh, would that have been the Wolfpack Squadron? Probably. I know the Wolfpack. Yeah, because yeah. I don't think. I don't think that stage was in the arcade version at all, where you went up against the three stealth fighters. Right. Right, it's just one giant stealth fighter that you're fighting over the mountaintops. There's a neat strategy with that stage, too. <laughs> uh, you can basically use any plane to do it, um, but uh, there are camouflage green planes, and then there's white planes that can sneak in from behind you. Uh, the camouflage planes take like two or three hits to take out with your cannons, but the ones behind you are a bit harder to take out. But even with the Crusader, if you can fly in above them, you can drop a bomb, a single bomb, right on the top of them, and they'll they'll be taken out immediately. Yeah, I I I gleaned that strategy from watching you, and started using that right away when I went into that stage. The, the one of the interesting things about the the Super NES version over the arcade is, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's the it's the power up where you shoot the big bomb kind of in a upward direction and then it sort of rains down lasers on everybody oh yeah the mega crush mega crush yeah that is not in the arcade version at all there's nothing like that and that's basically like your screen clearing smart bomb uh and so that's an interesting element that they added in the super nes version additionally uh most of the planes can only ever have one of those at a time and the weapon uh, refills will not in increase your count for the Mega Crush if it's been used. Or even if it hasn't been used, you'll only ever have one. However, the uh, Ifrit can be equipped with two. Yes. And the weapon the weapon recovery does actually add another one to your stock. So you can have at most, well, not, not even at most. If you can find two in a single stage, you can have up to four Mega Crush at a time. Wow. Yeah, the the arcade or the the Super NES version also adds the the cluster shot, which is an interesting power up. That's not in the arcade version at all, uh, but there are several several of the of the secondary weapons that were directly uh, you know came over directly from the arcade version, like the Phoenix missiles, the napalm bombs, and I'm trying to think of what one of the other ones is but i will bet i will bet you uh having not really uh looked too deeply into the power-up system within the arcade version i'll bet you any amount that the super shell is in there oh yeah it uh, could be like i said i didn't use that many power-ups in the arcade version mostly the the phoenix missiles when they were offered uh and the napalm in a couple of instances just because of the good coverage that they had for ground targets. Oh yeah. But um but I think those power-ups play a much bigger role in the Super NES version because some of those fights and some of those stages I can't imagine trying to get through some of those things without those even just the basic bombs. Uh like you said, you know, use those to take out the the small white planes that come in behind you. Uh, during that stage with the three stealth fighters, I, I can't, I can't see getting through that very successfully without having those bombs there. 
you know, th- there are other stages where it's just so much easier to take out a ground target with a bomb and be able to focus on your air targets so that you're not moving wildly all over the screen. And so it definitely changes the way that you that you play the game and makes it so that routing your way through a stage is is a lot it's a different approach. And so I, I it really makes it a much different experience. Even if they would have changed the levels and, and things like that for the Super NES version to sort of make it a remix kind of of the arcade game, you know, it could have still been a relatively similar experience. But I think expanding the the secondary weapon system like they did uh, really changes the experience and makes it a much different game. Going into the graphics, one thing I noted on the arcade version specifically is that the sprites are actually quite large. Uh, your, the planes that you fly are pretty large. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of shmups from that era have smaller sprites. You know, you play something like Raiden or uh, Twin Cobra or, or a game like that. And your character is not that big. Uh, it made me think of, of uh, Silkworm by Tecmo, kind of similar to that, where it feels like you've got a pretty large hitbox, and you know your your on-screen plane looks pretty large, but I feel like you still have a lot of room to move around, and you know proportionally, I think everything looks pretty good in terms of you know your character size, but. You know the, the the sprites are colorful, and they're they got a lot of of good design and detail. Uh, the character portraits look really nice in the arcade version. They're they're detailed, and they they've got personality. You know you can tell that the art was kind of lovingly recreated based on the manga art. And so they, they look really good. And I really think that the stage design and the, the stage art overall is quite good in the, in the arcade game. It's really, really vibrant and eye-catching. Oh, and another detail is, in the arcade version, as you take damage, your, uh, your player avatar changes. So, for example, if you finish a stage with full health or with almost full health, your character will be smiling real big and, uh, you know, one of them will do like a thumbs up and, you know, haha, you know, I did a good job. Whereas if you take more damage, then their expression changes and, you know, they're not smiling as big anymore. Or if you get to the end of the stage and you either have no health left or you have just a little bit of health, they have a really strained look on their face. Uh, like, uh, yeah, I pulled it off, but I'm in bad shape. Uh, so I thought that was a nice detail, you know, with the, with the arcade version specifically. I don't remember seeing if that is in the Super NES version or not, but I thought it was a nice, a nice detail nonetheless. I, I do feel like the, the Super NES version does a pretty good job of, adapting the look of the arcade version. Uh, 
Uh, now, of course, everything is scaled down. Uh, sprites aren't quite as big. Everything isn't quite as colorful. And the detail, the backgrounds aren't quite as, as detailed. The, av the character avatars aren't quite as, as crisp. Uh, but I think everything still looks really good. It's all very colorful, which, of course, is typical for the Super NES, especially because of the wide color palette that it has and the fact that it can display so many colors on screen at once. So I still think it, it pulls it off pretty nicely overall and has a pretty good look. It does have better gradients overall, I thought. Oh, yeah, the, the because there is a wider range of color, it wasn't quite as hard a gradient from one tone to the next. Uh, with a lot of in a lot of cases, um, I also found that the character portraits were a little better. Like uh, McCoy, for example, he doesn't look kind of uh, as derpy as in the arcade version. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't notice him being derpy. I mean, I thought you know the translation from arcade to home was pretty good overall, in the sense that they look pretty similar and that yeah i mean that's probably just because that's all i've ever played in life is the super famicom version but i mean yeah mccoy looks a little a uh, little off-putting <laughs> in arcade <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think addicted uh in terms of the the graphics and the design i thought they did a phenomenal job of porting it home with the graphics I, I'll have to look and see if I see the derp next time in my head look. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought the sprites were well animated and things made sense on what they were. It wasn't a, a case where I ever felt the pink bullet syndrome where I was hit out of nowhere by something. I, everything was clearly defined. It works really well. I, I was taking a quick look at some of the reviews that people have written, like uh, Video Games Plus. And so uh, when they were looking at the arcade version and a lot of the reviewers didn't like it and they said it, it, they expected more out of Capcom at this point and this is just sort of more of the same to them which was interesting but I thought this was the graphics in both versions are really well done and as Fro had mentioned large sprites and everything's animated really well there's not anything that could be, de be defined as uh, shrill maybe if we're comparing I mean 1942 was done so long ago compared to this but still there was nothing that was jarring visually or, or with the sound really well done yeah I mean when you think about you know you, you kind of said that people expected more from Capcom I mean I I don't know. That feels weird to me because 1943 came out in 1987, which was, you know, three years after when 1942 came out. And 1943 is a pretty good looking game, but it's not it's not vastly superior to 1942, at least in terms of the arcade version. It's more colorful it does more and it looks better, but it's not a huge leap. I would call UN Squadron a huge leap from 1943 to to UN Squadron. Just two years later, it's so much more colorful 
and there's, you know, so much more going on. Now, of course, the setting helps. Uh, the fact that it's uh, side-scrolling, and you can see the ground, and you can see the sky, and you've got, you know, the ability to do more with that from a setting, but everything is just more detailed and just looks better, and the design, I think, is just is just so much improved. So, I don't know. I, I'm going to have to call shenanigans on uh, whoever that reviewer was that said that, that they expected more, because... For 1989, I really feel like the the arcade version was was pretty much right in the pocket. Well, here I'll read you the quick re- last paragraph of the review. With all the technical wizardry at its fingertips, it seems astonishing that the nice people like Capcom can come up with something as fingers down the throat as this. Better luck next time, chaps. Fingers it, down the throat. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that. This is from Sinclair User from December 1989. Oh, well, that uh, explains it, everything. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, but this is the second review. The, the other one did say fingers down the throat, but it was under the same tone. Uh, it's interesting. I wonder if at this point people were wanting something different, and this was just sort of a genre shift that they were. Tired of seeing shooters have been shootered out at this point, I or STGs to call them the correct term. I mean, I, I would agree, but I mean, with Raiden appearing in the early '90s, that kind of goes against what you just said there, because Raiden, if nothing else, Raiden revitalized it 100%. So, for a market that would have already been oversaturated from the '80s, to have something like Raiden in the '90s. Uh, still maintain the kind of popularity it did and it still maintains a following like a huge following today uh, I don't think that's quite where uh, that was quite the situation uh, d- despite Raiden 5's best efforts yeah <laughs> yeah too much too much coffee talk right <laughs> yeah uh, it may not be so much that the genre it may just be that people were expecting something different out of Capcom at this point in time it could be yeah it could also be that it was called UN Squadron, and <laughs> it's neither the UN nor a squadron. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could see it, too, because you have something like, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the other the other horizontal shooter that Capcom put out around that time. Uh, Forgotten Worlds, which... Oh, yeah. You know, which is a different approach. I don't think it's as impressive visually as UN Squadron or Area 88 is. No. But it has more stark contrasts, so the vibrant colors, uh, when they're there, maybe appear more vibrant because it's against a lot of dark backgrounds. But, yeah, I don't know. I just it, I just find it weird. That's a super weird game, too. <laughs> yeah. Forgotten Worlds. It's... it's- it's weird. Like a lot about a lot about that game kind of makes me scratch my head. But uh, yeah, yep. So I've got the uh, last paragraph of the other review here, which was uh, along the same lines here, but still strikes me as odd. Another Japanese manufacturer that was probably keeping something back was Capcom, with UN Squadron, the latest release on show, along with virtually every other CP system game. 
There is a bit of lack of excitement. Boring, boring. Specifically as UN Squadron is barely as stimulating as inviting as slipping into a five-year coma. That's pretty harsh words. Oh my god. Wow. Sorry, what, what magazine was this one? Uh, let's see here. Oh, I'll have to find it in here. It looks it says SU December 1989. See if I can find out what exactly... Oh, Sinclair oh. user again? No, no, I'm sorry, not Sinclair no? user. Um, v- VG Plus, I think, was it? Let me... F- I'm trying to get back to the... Uh, there we go. Uh, C plus VG. Huh. Oh, com- yeah. computers and uh, and video games. Games, yes. Yeah, C and VG in uh, the UK. I, I want to say that UN Squadron probably wasn't that popular in the UK in specific. Yeah, maybe everyone played the U.S. Gold release and said, "Forget this." <laughs> yeah, I, I could, I could totally see that. Actually, the U.S. U.S. Gold is like notoriously bad for their ports. So, yeah, I was just shocked by how vicious they were in the reviews. If they don't yeah. like it, it's one thing, but man, five that, years that's coma. that's that's. I don't think I've said anything quite as bad on Bullet Heaven. With the exception, maybe of D Force. <laughs> I was immediately thinking of D Force. I was like, "Yeah, you kind of you kind of tore that game a new one." So, oh yeah, not not as bad as Deep Blue though. Oh Ugh. yeah. Well, to be fair though, both of those games deserve it. Oh yeah, no, that's like that. That's the scrapings from the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. We're doing a new award at the end of this year. Game most likely to put you into a five-year coma. <laughs> Deep blue, <laughs> deep blue, <laughs> or rim nine thousand? Or is that most likely to make you vomit? Not sure. I think yeah, that's that's closer to the that's a that's an epilepsy uh, generator. Yeah. Whew. Uh. Uh. Well, should we talk about the sound? Yes. I thought the sound was solid in both versions. I liked the. Super Famicom version of the soundtrack a little bit more than the arcade version. Is Super Famicom version, as you know, using the sound samples, has a very distinctive feel on there, and it can be really good, or it can sound, you know, like you're in echo chamber with musical instruments. It, this case, it turned out very well, and none of the tracks in either version really maybe want to turn on something else. Both were very well done. The arcade version has FM sound where the NES, sorry, Super Nintendo doesn't have an FM sound chip, so interprets the music in other ways. And I, it was nice to see that all of the pieces in it weren't like Fantasy Zone, where you're shooting everything, everything's happy, bright colors, and <laughs> it, it, it fit the mood of, of what the manga was trying to establish. It, it didn't come off as overly chipper. But it didn't come down as very melancholy either. Yeah, th- this is one of those situations where I was a little bit surprised because I knew the Super NES version before. I remember not liking it that much. Uh, I think specifically because I felt like the briefing music I felt was a little bit repetitive when I first played this game years ago. And then the shop music was almost sounded somewhat discordant to me uh, and sort of unnecessarily dissonant. But I think it was just, I think it's just the fact that 
I have such a such a preference and I'll say bias for the FM sound on the Genesis because I had that system as a kid. And so that's kind of what I gravitate toward. What I was surprised about, though, is coming back to this game, uh, some of it is the composition because the tunes are, are just good, good tracks. But I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the sound of the Super NES version. Uh, and even though I played a fair amount of the arcade version during the course of the month and started to really dig the FM versions of those tunes, I still find that that the console versions I kind of like a little bit better. And that's unusual for me, especially since the console version is, is the Super NES, and I, I tend to not like that as much. But I really think it works for this game. You know, it's kind of like Gradius 3, where they just knew how to make it sing and how to get what they needed to get out of the console in order to mm. make the track sound really good. And I think they pulled it you off. Know, back in the day, you could tell exactly what company made a game based on how it sounded. You didn't even really have to look at it. You knew what a Konami game sounded like. You knew what a Capcom game sounded like. A Nintendo game and so forth. Uh, the same can kind of be said of the Super, the Super NES and Super Famicom. Um, the sound chip is called the SSMP. It's, it was made by Sony, and uh, it has a very sort of rich tone to it that really hasn't really been replicated be, be beyond the Super NES. Um, because, like, of course, uh, with, with later systems, they relied more heavily on, like, CD uh, audio redbook and, uh, um, and, you know, more robust sound synthesis with, uh, you know, 128-bit systems and beyond. Um, but, like, for the 16-bit... Uh, there was really nothing else quite like it. And I think you, uh, with that said, you could still really tell what companies were, were making games for the Super NES as well, because the same sort of signatures kind of came out. Whereas with FM, it all just kind of sounded like FM. Um, so like you could really tell that this was a Capcom game by listening to it because the same kind of flourishes and the same kind of sound was found in games like Final Fight or Street Fighter or Breath of Fire. It was all kind of there as well. And to that end, I do prefer the Super NES version to the arcade version. Although I will say that some of the uh, the tunes do really sound really good in FM. Yeah, I, I'm just, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the, the Super NES version of the soundtrack coming back to this game after years ago when I played it, feeling like, eh, this is okay. Um... You know, but but coming back to it now, I feel like okay, this is actually really good, and I just either didn't give it a chance before, or I just wasn't in the right headspace. Now, Sarah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the scoring in the game is pretty pretty basic. I'm not aware of anything other than like getting a money bonus at the end of the level for extra ammo on the the special weapons you know, that you don't use up. Uh, is there any other nuance to the scoring? Not really. It's basically, it boils down to just destroying as much as you can. Um, one thing that you can do to get a bigger score is to st strategically die and redo certain mm -hmm. stages. 
Uh, so, for example, if you were to make it all the way through the game and uh, and not die once, you'd probably get a score of around 600,000 points or thereabouts. Uh, but if you were to die uh, at the end of the the final stage, it's long enough and there's enough enemies and opposition in there that you could really boost the score up significantly if you just did that stage over five or six times and then beat it on your final life. <laughs> wow. It's kind of a cheesy exploit. Uh, another way that you can boost up your points if you have the time and patience for it is to just do the quartermaster cores over and over again. Right. Not only will you get extra money out of it every single time you do, but the, the amount of uh, points that you score by taking out the trucks on your run will inevitably boost up the score as well. So really, you could probably counter-stop the game if you had enough time and patience to do it. Huh. Yeah, I, I don't know... Wow, I don't know that I would want to put in the amount of time that it would take to counterstop. Yeah, I, I just think that would probably be ridiculous. At that point, it's not so much getting a high score as it is speedrunning your counterstop, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, here's here's I guess as we as we kind of transition from from talking about the meat and potatoes of the game and sort of giving some you know final impressions i want to know specifically what is it about this game that drew you in sarah because i know this is a game that you really like and that you've streamed several times and you know last month you did uh you did a, a couple of streams of it and you know cleared it and that sort of thing what is it that about this game that grabbed you the thing that really grabbed me more or less was the there's, there's a lot of diversity when it comes to the planes that you can take on the game with. Although I did inevitably settle into just using the Crusader at first just to sort of see how far it could get. But now it's more of like a badge of honor. Can I get through it on hard difficulty with just a Crusader? <laughs> uh, not yet, but I probably could if I gave it a little more uh, chutzpah. Um, but there's also the... Uh, like there's replayability in the in that there's multiple difficulties. There's a hidden difficulty as well. Uh, you can put in a code on the second controller to unlock gamer difficulty. Uh, I haven't gotten the one credit clear on that yet, but I have made it through the game on two continues. Um, let's see here. But yeah, I think there's really um, it's it's all it was all about the visuals. It was about the sound. It was about the playability. It was about the uh, the way that you could choose the order in which you took on your stages. Uh, like, did you want to take on the Battleship Minx with level 3 cannons, or did you want to save it until you had level 5, right? Right. Um, all of the little secrets, all of the little nuances between the bosses, finding the safe spots. There was a lot to the game that I really liked tooling around with as, uh, as a younger player. And it, it's not really a stretch to say that UN Squadron is one of the, the main cornerstones and one of the main reasons that I'm into the genre that I am today. Very cool. It's right up there with 1942 and Raiden Fighters. Oh, wow. Oh, Raiden Fighters. We got to cover that sometime next year. That game is great. Yeah, we definitely, we definitely need to get that on the list. Okay, so Addicted. Uh, arcade or Super NES? Uh, I would say for gameplay, I like the streamlined gameplay in the arcade version just a little bit more. 
just like barely as far as an experience however i mean it's it's just it's so close the super nintendo version comes so close to it but i prefer the streamlined experience with the arcade but i like the sound better with the super famicom version they're both really really well done and really close in my book but the arcade version just wins out just by a hair for the streamlining experience for me. Yeah, see, and I think I'm I think I'm the other side of that coin. Whereas I really enjoyed the arcade version and I had a lot more fun with it than I anticipated and you know, the first time that I played it, I got totally curb stomped and my initial reaction was, "Wow, how does anybody play this? Then, of course, I, you know, I, I sat back and realized, okay, this is an arcade game. It's meant to take your money. Of course, it's going to be difficult, and I'm just going to have to put in some time and learn it, which I did, and I managed to get reasonably good. You know, I didn't pull off the, the 1cc by the end of the month, uh, but I, I felt pretty good about my progression with the amount of time I spent with it. But I think, I do think that this is one of those cases where the home conversion improves upon the formula. It no longer is an arcade game and they, they add enough to it and kind of open it up a little bit and give you enough freedom that it really does alter the experience enough to, to really make it kind of its own thing even though you can still see all of the all of the foundations that were laid in the arcade version so i really i really think the super nes version is the superior game uh, at the end of the day i like the way it looks i like the way it sounds i like the the freedom the game gives you the additional options for you know weapons and things and you know, it, it really is just a, a really well done game that I think uh, there's a reason that it's so fondly remembered and that it comes up in conversation frequently when you start talking about shooters on the Super NES. Um, so I think it's its place in, in uh, you know, lists for the console is well-deserved. Yeah, and I, I realize that I'll probably be the odd man out in, in this case. Be, and it, I, it came very close for me for going to the Super Nintendo version, and I could totally see why people gravitate towards it. I, I grew up as an arcade player. I worked in preserving arcade machines, and I... Worked a little stint for a while working in backing up ROMs and game boards for MAME Dev. So I think that's probably the only reason why I like the arcade version a little bit more is I have a personal attachment to it. Absolutely. So here's the question then. I mean, for me, this is the definitive Super NES shoot 'em up. I don't think there's any other shooter on the Super NES that really comes close in terms of playability and presentation. But that's just me. Would you guys say that it's your favorite Super NES shoot 'em up? Ooh. I for me, I don't think I can uh because A, I haven't played them all. 
uh, but also B, um, Space Megaforce exists. <laughs> uh, that is a, that is a really good game. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and I mean you know, and I've got a couple of of others that are sort of sentimental favorites, like like uh, I know that it's people consider it somewhat middling in the series, but I actually quite like Darius Twin. I think it's a a fun game. Hey, I mean, I bought it twice. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, and and of course, Gradius Three on the Super NES. I I. I took to that game a lot more than I thought I would, and I came out enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, so, you know, that that's another one where I think it probably is in the conversation in terms of, of you know, great shmups on the system. And then R-Type 3, of course. Yeah, I would place it within the top, top three shmups on the Super Nintendo slash Super Famicom. I'm not exactly where it would fall in there, but it would definitely be in the top three. I was gonna. That's a very safe answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm kind of in the same boat. It's, you know, because it depends on where I'm at from day to day. You know, I certain days I may I may feel like this game is what I'm gravitating towards. Yeah. Yep, I'm in the same boat. There is still a huge library of. Titles I want to try. I haven't tried Flying Heroes yet, or Flying Hero yet. I don't know if that is uh, Kusoge, which it probably isn't, but I don't know how well that would rate on there. <laughs> There's still a lot of games to play. Yeah. But it, whatever the outcome of it, UN Squadron slash Area 88 would rank pretty high up there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's It has to be top five, if not top three. Uh, in terms of shooters on the console, I just think it's it's too well designed, it's too good, and it's too unique in what it does uh, to not be in that conversation. Okay, well, we have kind of given our thoughts. Uh, now let's hear from some folks within the ARF Generation community. And so Easy Racer uh, offered some thoughts during the course of the month. He says, one thing I really like about it is that it has customizable controller configuration. I have found that having X be the base weapon with A as the special weapon and Y as the change weapon works best for me. And that was something he recommended to me when uh, when I started the month and was playing with uh, you know a third-party Super NES pad. When I moved over to playing on the Mister, uh, the way that the controller config was, it sort of did that anyway, so I didn't have to change it from the default. But I did feel like the initial, you know, sort of the default configuration didn't work f- as well as me uh, as well for me as I thought it would. Uh, he says, "Been been very much enjoying UN Squadron, even though I'm making progress at a snail's pace." getting stuck on trying to defeat the land carrier in the desert level. Also, what does everyone else think of the different characters? I usually use either Shin or Greg. Um, he says, don't quite know how to explain it, but the more I play this, the more it feels like an action-slash-adventure game disguised as a shmup. Thoroughly enjoying it, though. 
and I, I, I can see some some merit to that uh, that position and kind of where he's coming from on that. Yeah, it's like those old choose your own adventure books. <clears throat> yeah, because you can pick your path. And like I said earlier, you know, at, at some level, there's a there's a logical path to take, a logical you know stage order to pick because of how and when you're able to power up. And, and that sort of thing, you know, how much power you need to take on certain enemy types. But yeah, I mean, it, it does, it does make sense then, you know, to do it a certain way, but really you can attack it from different, uh, you know, from, from different, uh, different stage orders. So I guess it depends on how good you are or, you know, how you, how you strategize it. One thing I wanted to mention specific to Shin and Greg is I was getting frustrated on the Super NES version playing as Shin because I would take a hit and then I would be vulnerable. And so then I would take another hit and I would die. And everybody kept telling me, use Greg, he recovers faster. My problem with Greg on the Super NES version is he powers up so slow that I didn't feel like I could power up fast enough to actually make any real progress with Greg. The only way I could do that is by the time you get to the, the first flight mission where you're totally in the sky and you're taking on the stealth bomber at the end of the mission, when you're fighting those larger planes that come out of the clouds, I don't feel like I have enough enough forward firepower with Greg to actually take those things out fast enough because instead of taking one out and then taking on a squadron or whatever, I would get to the point where I had two of those on the screen at one time and other planes flying in from either in front or behind me. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. The only way I was able to make Hmm. that work is if I got to stage two and then died once or twice partway through the stage after collecting more power-ups so I could actually get him to a place where he could do enough damage that he could take those things out quickly. And so ultimately, that's why I ended up settling on Shin for the Super NES version. Yeah, I, uh, I usually go with Shin as well, just on the basis that uh, he does power up so quickly. Um, because like, yeah, you're, you're already at the, the second level by the end of stage one and stage two usually gets you to level three, which I guess would be the stealth bomber. And then you can usually get to level four between the forest fortress or, uh, or the desert carrier and then level five for battleship minx. Yeah. Uh, easy racer also said, this is one of the most intense yet exhilarating games I've played in a long time. Now that I'm starting to get some consistency on the early levels, I'm really getting into this, and I love the music on the forest stage, even though I have yet to clear it. And he offers some final thoughts at the end of the month and says, If there was another month, I'm confident I could have hit the 1cc. Made it to the cave on one credit. No picture, but broke 500,000 points. <coughs> love the variety in this game, and really appreciate the boss battles that scroll in both directions. I'm novice enough with shmups that I don't know how unique to the genre it is, but it's an interesting mechanic that gives those boss battles a more epic feel. The dogfighting level is also a nice stray from the norm. 
With its level selection and grinding, I still feel like it's an adventure game posing as a shmup, and that's fine by me. Capcom got so much right, the music and the environments are all fresh enough to have their own character and memorability, if that's a word, and the gameplay and controls are super intense but fair. I've watched some of Metal Fro's streams, and full dis- for full disclosure, I haven't played the arcade version, just watched. But I can't shake the feeling that Capcom took a respectable arcade IP and reimagined it with in an even better form. Can't wait to see and hear comments from those who have played both. Really have enjoyed UN Squadron this month. We had right on our side. <laughs> I love that he sort of added uh, a little bit of a line from you know one of the end stage little quips that the pilots will say. All right. Our next comment comes to us from Shaggy. It says, I wish you could make the L and R buttons rotate through their weapons. Anyways, apparently I suck at this game. I can beat the first stage without any trouble, but the first airplane re- level gives me trouble and it reaches the base and, well, I have trouble with that one. I can't beat any other level. Obviously, I need to figure out which plane to buy and use on each level, I think. And yes, no high score after game over that I can find. This, yeah, I think what happened to Shaggy is he did, the expandability of of this in the non-linearity just got to him and he needs a, a little bit more instruction on this. I'm sure he can do it. It's one of those things that maybe that's a little bit of the reason why people were having some trouble with it is because it is so expansive and you can tackle the stages really for the most part in any order you want yeah the, choose the weapon the non-linearity of it can be a little daunting at first thank you for trying to using the words i was trying to find yes it, it seems intimidating to people or daunting but once you get over the initial hump it works out of a really well-playing game it's I, I don't want to use a Dark Souls metaphor here, but it, <laughs> once it finally clicks with you, it becomes a really good game and something that you can really sink your teeth into. Here's another pro tip, too. Um, you can actually cycle through your weapons by pausing the game and then pressing the weapon selection. So when you unpause, you'll then have the weapon that you need at that point in time. That is a good tip. I don't think I even thought about that during the course of the month. I just sort of fumbled through and then sometimes uh, used the wrong weapon because I hit the button too many times. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Saturday Development jumped in and uh, uh, says, use the cluster, the circular fireball, and Phoenix missiles for defense during the level, and don't be shy about wasting them. And I think he was answering Shaggy in this particular post. Every hit you avoid lets you take another hit in the boss fight. For example, if you are getting surrounded and have too many enemies behind you, hit them with the cluster. Note that the F-14D carries 10 clusters, which is great for defense on the harder levels. Uh, He says, don't do the dogfight level, the one with the three pink stealths at the end, right away. This level doesn't have any weapon power-ups, so your level will be stuck. Play some of the other levels, like the desert, to get your weapons powered up. Then those little planes will die faster. Also says, memorize the hidden power-ups. They are are invisible, but show after you shoot them twice. 
These are very helpful for the boss battles. Most bosses have one or two power-ups located right before or after them. I documented all the ones I know about here, and he linked to his own blog, which I uh, thought was a really nice gesture that he did during the course of the month. He also says, don't buy too many planes. Uh, you want to have the F-200 for the end. I typically buy the F-14D as soon as possible, then save my money for the F-200. I suicide on the canyon after picking up two stars for bonus points if I need more money for the F-200. This can be done on other levels with stars, too. And uh, he, he went ahead and linked to his website with uh, screenshots of the power application. So I thought that was really cool that he, he did that during the, coast, the course of the month. All right. So our next comment comes to us from Duke Togo, our resident Dark Souls player. Played a little tonight and didn't fare very well. It goes from fairly easy in stage one to murder after that. <laughs> wonder if he was trying to play Greg the entire time and ran into trouble on there. Again, it could just be trying to find that right combination that works with your play style with in this game. There's so many different combinations there. You know, if you're having some trouble with the Super Nintendo, you can always try out or check out the arcade version to get maybe a little bit better handle on things. But still, I think that at least trying trying out the game and giving it effort to see, to see if you like it or not is definitely a worthwhile investment. I'm glad you did. And the next comment comes to us from Geardo211. Hopefully I'm not too late. I loved the game as a kid. I played on normal difficulty, and I was on my first credit with five lives when I got to the ceiling boss. He took all of those and a continue. However, I think this is one of the few shmups I could 1cc if I kept trying. I used Gates and Crusader to clear everything up to the Desert Carrier. By that point, I had saved enough for the Ifrit. I didn't run as many convoy attacks as playthrough as I have in the past either. I also had never changed the controls before and putting the weapon select on the R trigger made things a lot easier. Clusters and Phoenix always clear the way, but I found a gunpaw and napalm are pretty useful this time. Mega Crash is great for brief invincibility. <clears throat> I never used the laser or super shell in the bullpup only on the, the last R type looking like boss. I still love this game and listen to the soundtrack frequently on my way to work. It's definitely classic Capcom. I never saw this in the arcade, but I played the sequel Carrier Airwing a few times. Wow, somebody did find a Carrier Airwing cabinet. I'm impressed. <laughs> this cabinet would make a great addition, but it seems pretty rare. I haven't delved into arcade emulation, but I think these two games would be a great reason to. Thank you for joining us on the playthrough. I definitely think it was classic Capcom and despite what some of the reviewers say does not put you into a five a five month coma it, <laughs> especially that would be hazardous while driving I too was impressed by it. it's something that I had had in my collection for a while and hadn't had a chance to play and was really impressed by the quality when I first started playing the Super Nintendo version and then jumped over to the arcade version I wish I had would have seen this in the arcade so I could have given it a shot. It is something that, oh well, though it's known to most people, 
it's not something that most people have tried, and they really should. Yep. <laughs> He's got a later poster. I finally got my 1cc with a final score of 677,800. Still playing normal difficulty with Greg. Plowed through everything up to the SR-71 Blackbird with a Crusader. Had to grind about 8 supply convoys to have enough for the free with a few basic power-ups. Anyone who can beat this with another jet is a beast. Oh, he's calling Sarah Beast. <laughs> <laughs> Ceiling boss got me for four lives, but the Napalm Gun Pod combo still got me through. The last level is actually pretty easy. The mini boss goes down fast if you park in front and below of it and blast it with the gun pod. I ran out of specials on the R-Type boss, so I had to go inside, but whatever works. First 1cc of any shmup, and this is my favorite, one of my favorite Super Nintendo games, so it's fitting. Hopefully I can keep up the momentum in future playthroughs. Definitely agreed. I'd love to see you keep with us and get some more 1ccs. It's a great goal to have. Yes, and congratulations on the 1cc, Gerdo. Well played. Uh, and finally, Zoido says, even though I totally see why everyone loves this game, I just can't find a groove with it. I guess the multiple special weapon system, the stage select, shop feature, and story sequences is just too much to handle, handle for my simple brains. Well, I wouldn't say that because you're, uh, you're more of a beast and, and have posted more 1ccs on twitter than i think any of us have <laughs> uh, he says i see that it serves the game to have a lot of variation but it somehow kills the flow for me anyway i love the music and the graphics also played two or three credits on the arcade version and i liked that it's a bit more straightforward but i agree that the super famicom version is the better game good game to everyone else who cleared the game or came close so speaking of, uh, of that, uh, in the high score department, it's pretty simple this month because Saturday Development swept both the Super Nin Nintendo and arcade versions uh, with a score of 703,000 points in the Super NES version and 252,340 points in the arcade version. So congrats to Saturday Development for clinching both of those this month. So, final thoughts. Is there anything else we need to say about UN Squadron? Yes, I would say most people, when you talk about Super Nintendo shmups, most people think of your Gradius 3 or they think of your Axel A. I would say start with UN Squadron. It's cheap and you're going to get a lot of play out of it. And you're probably going to be surprised by how well it plays does and if it doesn't click for you then you're only out maybe 10 or 12 dollars i haven't checked on the price of it but it's it's definitely if someone asked me what game should i pick up for the super nintendo it would be in my list along with super mario world and link to the past yeah it looks like you can you can get it loose for about 25 bucks or so that's not too bad no definitely worth it uh i will just end by saying that the submarine boss and the ceiling boss are both jerks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I came away 
impressed by both the arcade and Super NES versions and surprised at how much I how much I enjoyed them and how how much fun I had with them even if the frustration that I was expressing on stream might have uh, not always <laughs> uh, you know shown that I was having that much fun <laughs> any final thoughts from you Sarah well I mean this is one of those games that I'm pretty sure I'm going to be play I'll, I'll, I'll go back and play this every now and again for pretty much the rest of my life um, every time I do so I, I always find some way to really sort of streamline what I'm doing just sort of own my skill just a little bit more to get through that dumb ceiling boss. And uh, I'm sure there will come a time where I'm going to be able to get through the entire thing on just a single life using only the Crusader. Nice. Yeah, someone was suggesting uh, bringing Napalm along for the ceiling boss so that you can concentrate on flying along the upper part of the stage with him and then dropping Napalm on the ground to take out all those little enemies that shoot up at you. I forget, does Napalm go in both directions or just the one? That's a good question. I, I've, I haven't used Napalm in literally 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's something to try at least. Yeah, <laughs> drop by my streams every Saturday night for a chance to see that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Addicted, would you like to fill us in on what we got going on next? All right. Well, as we record this, we are knee-deep into Zero Ranger, an indie darling, and very well received. I, I'm liking what I'm playing so far. And in September, we have Kamui, which... Is that... Forgive me if I pronounce... Did I pronounce that right, Kamui? Yeah, that's right. Okay. We have Kamui, which... Looks like it's part of a trilogy on there. Can you add a little bit more context into that? Yeah, Kamui is one of the three games uh, in what's called the Tale of All Tynex. Uh, it's a sort of a trilogy of games that are loosely affiliated. And uh, the first of the three games to actually be released. But I want to say that story-wise, it's technically the last, maybe? So... I think that's what it was, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's uh, it's an interesting game. It actually bears quite a resemblance and, and takes a lot of inspiration from Taito's Ray Force. Uh, so it's actually a little bit interesting that we're tackling Kamui first before we actually play Ray Force. But um, yeah, this is a this is a good little indie game and uh, one that I think anyone looking for a kind of an old school arcade style challenge will definitely uh enjoy playing i might jump in, jump in on that actually awesome yeah we'd love to have you yeah definitely and uh, you just gave me an idea for maybe next year we'll see how it works out but i was thinking the uh summer of thunder force Ooh. two three four five six oh good grief <laughs> I'm not sure anyone wants to play Thunder Force 1. <laughs> Probably That's whatever not. we keep saying. I, I do have all those games, though. Yeah. It's good like, stuff. Like every single one. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. I love the story for 3. That thing at the ending is just bad. 
<laughs> Crazy. So are we skipping Thunder Spirits then? Or? Oh, Thunder Spirits. I gotta add Thunder Spirits. Let's add, add it all. It's on Arcade Archives. That's, th that's Thunder Force AC, though. Thunder oh, Spirits right. isn't that good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I still think... Numbers. Yeah, I still think we... You know, when we go, when we play Thunder Force Three, I still think we'll we'll need to include that and talk about it because, you know, it's it's an important part of the Thunder Force story, even if it's, you know, a lesser game. And you know what? I still bought it twice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Super NES and Super Famicom. Yeah, I got it complete on SFC though, so yeah. that's kind of where it was. Yeah, had to do it. Right. Very nice. Alrighty. Well, uh, we would like to shout out some folks here. Uh, obviously, Sarah, uh, thank you for the logo and uh, for being our guest today. Um, and of course, the logo is on some snazzy shirts. I'm wearing mine right now. And uh, you can go to redbubble.com and search for Shoot the Corecast and pick up a shirt, support the podcast, and... Uh, you know, make sure you put that out on all the social media to let people know that that you have our shirt and that uh, you're wearing it proudly. I wore mine out, so I need to buy a hoodie. Oh, there you go. Uh, also, thank you to Kogasu for the intro and outro music, uh, to ArvGeneration.com, and uh, shout out to the ArvGen Playcast and the ArvGen Collectorcast, two other great podcasts on the site. So make sure you check those out. Uh, I believe that the 2019 RF Gen NES challenge is still going. Uh, you know, it came into 2020 and I think that's still running, but I don't know what the progress is right now. And uh, of course, if you want to connect with us, uh, you can follow sh at shootcorecast on Twitter. You can also follow me directly at GameboyGuru. Come over to rfgeneration.com and sign up for the site. Join us for a Shmup Club playthrough. Uh, also, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your preferred platform. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and uh, also we are now on Spotify. Uh, so check us out there. And join the RF Generation Discord channel. Uh, where we've got a dedicated Shoot the Corecast topic, uh, where we talk about the podcast, we talk about the Shmup Club Game of the Month, and just shmups in general. And so always some good discussion going on uh, there during the course of the day. And uh, as we mentioned, I stream these games, so you can follow me on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash gamebuy to get notifications of new streams and to watch me die repeatedly. You you have extra hazards though. You have two chihuahuas. Uh, that's true. Yes, uh -huh. I have the two dogs that like to get up in my face and beg for attention while I'm in the thick of of playing. So yeah, that uh, that is always interesting to navigate. Anything uh, in particular that you want to plug, Sarah? Well, uh, if you are into video game BGM and you want some hot jams for your me media player of choice, feel free to mosey on over to smpmusicproductions.bandcamp.com for your fix. You can get over 200 tracks for less than $16. 
And that includes the brand new album 2020 Must Be Stopped, which launches this coming October. Yes, and I will I will echo that and say that uh, these tunes make great music for your work day. Uh, I like to put those on and have those going in my office while I'm working. Uh, so, yeah, definitely check those out. Yeah, I love using the M2 documentary music to, while I'm working. The one from My Life in Gaming that works really well for de-stressing you as you're working. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, a very well curated selection. That was actually the guys at My Life in Gaming that chose those specific tracks. Oh, nice. Very cool. Anything else to plug? Well, of course, there's my Twitch streams at twitch.tv slash We stream every Saturday at 10 p.m. Atlantic Time, which is also 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 p.m. Pacific um, we also, of course, produce all kinds of video content over on YouTube, as I said before, youtube.com slash where you can catch the newest episodes of Bullet Heaven, the newest, which will be Salamander 2, and I hope to have that uh, live tomorrow. All right, so pr- most likely by the time I actually get this episode edited, that will be up and uh, available for everyone. Gaia Seed might be out by that point. <laughs> yeah, depends on uh, how long it takes. Hey, my turnaround is pretty quick. Oh, well, mine not so much. <laughs> uh, I, all right. I love those Dreamcast episodes. Those are my favorite. Oh, the SCG Chronicle? Yeah, yes. I still have to get the seventh one on the go, but unfortunately my auto dolly broke, and I don't feel like doing manual pans, so oh. I, I gotta buy one of those. So buy my music, and I can get an auto dolly. <laughs> there you go. Hopefully you can get that in a mode soon. Yes. Well, anything else that we need to touch on before we head out of here, guys? Yes, no, thank I think you, I'm everybody. Good. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? No, I just want to say thank you, everybody, for uh, participating and joining. I appreciate it. So these podcasts are always fun to do. Yes. And thanks for having me on, by the way. This is, it's always fun to talk about something that I know a lot about. Oh, yeah. Well, and we always enjoy having a guest so that we can, you know, bounce ideas off other people and, and uh, change it up a little bit so it's not, not just us two. So thank you for coming on. My pleasure. All righty. Well, thank you everyone for listening, and we will see you next time.